Another pot of coffee is brewing and I've actually been rather disciplined today. Mostly courtesy of the fact that for some reason my milk was on the verge of curdling and tasted vile. Though I didn't notice until after the end of my second cup. To be fair, I did only end up having three cups of coffee. Sometimes I am really relieved that I have a tendency to buy stuff I know is going to be awful before I even try it. And luckily for me, one of those items happened to be a pre-mixed sachet of something that sort of resembled coffee. All that means is it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. See you above. This week, we're going on an African safari, though it may not end exactly as anyone wants it to. I'm taking you on a journey as I watch the third of three films that starred Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore together. Yes, I know Adam Sandler is a bit like Marmite. However, when he's not putting on a stupid voice or pulling a strange face, and here I'm thinking specifically of Little Nicky and Hubie Halloween. Seriously, why was that even on my watch list? He's actually great at what he does. This 2014 film is one that has layers. And even as I say it, I am struggling to figure out why. There are moments in the film where I actually thought I might cry and not with laughter. Somehow, the writers Ivan Menchel and Claire Sarah managed to inject this Sandler vehicle with a level of emotion that I have learned not to expect from his comedic ventures. So before I get into the actual review, what is Blended about? Recently divorced mum Lauren, played by Drew Barrymore, and widowed dad Jim, played by Adam Sandler, let their friends push them into a blind date, which goes disastrously wrong. Unsurprisingly, neither wants to see the other ever again. However, fate intervenes when both Jim and Lauren unknown to each other, purchase one half of the same vacation package at a South African resort. They and their children are forced to share the same suite and participate in a slew of family activities together. The film starts at Hooters, where Lauren is on a date. She's in the ladies' bathroom on the phone to her babysitter, complaining about the venue of the date. We don't have Hooters here, so... I'm a bit confused. Is it kind of like a cut price spearmint rhino or something? Anyway, her babysitter Tracy is watching as Lauren's two sons, Brendan and Tyler, are nightmares. Tyler has set fire to something and is waving it around in the kitchen and Brendan is just drooling over the babysitter until he uses a fire extinguisher to put out the fire and then turns it on poor Tracy. Lauren is absolutely unaware of anything that's going on in the house, completely focused on the fact that this date is turning out to be one from hell, at least in her view. Things only really go downhill from here as she leaves the poor babysitter to sort out the unruly boys and heads back into the bar where we meet her date, Jim Friedman. He's not even paying attention to her, he's completely focused on the game that's playing on TV. Jim is 
admittedly an inattentive date. But Lauren is also incredibly judgmental. And when she sarcastically asks which of the Hooters girls his wife left him for, there is an awkward silence after he tells her that his wife was taken from him by cancer. This is just one of the moments in the film that is less romantic comedy and more romantic drama. I can't imagine that cancer is something that can be made funny. Not realistically anyway. I mean, my family's experienced it several times and I don't think we've ever sat there and gone, <laughs> that's so funny, like ever. There is nothing like mentioning someone's death to call time on any potential enjoyment. Bad date city, party of two. Luckily for both of them, Jim gets a date-ending call about a disaster and they both leave. Sure, they're never going to have to see each other again. I'm probably incredibly relieved about that. The next day, Lauren can't stop venting to her co-worker Jen, who is played by Wendy McClendon-Covey, who I absolutely love in The Goldbergs and pretty much anything she's done because there's just something about her. Jen is happy-go-lucky and reveling in the joy of a new relationship with someone who has a lot of money and spoils her rotten. Jen is not a fan of children and, like anyone watching something happen, she can see the issues with Lauren's two sons. But Lauren isn't going to hear a bad word said about either of them. Of course, the date experience hit Lauren's confidence a little bit and she starts to blame herself for the breakdown of her marriage when it was her husband Mark who actually did the cheating. She tries on a dress in their client's wardrobe and as she studies her reflection, she asks Jen if she should have tried harder. Would he have cheated if she'd made more of a clothing and makeup effort? When Mark turns up later in the film, I am definitely not wondering this because he is slimy. Jim has problems of his own, though he doesn't seem to recognise them as such. He's working at the sporting goods store when his oldest daughter, Hilary, played by an almost unrecognisable Bella Thorne. Seriously, you wouldn't even know it was her unless you saw her name in the credits to start with, shows up. She has a very unflattering boyish haircut and is dressed in athletic gear and Jim calls her Larry. Hillary is good at basketball and it seems that Jim is determined to ignore the fact that she is a girl for as long as is possible. At home that evening, Lauren is confronted by her older son, Brendan, who has actually hacked into her email and read all her correspondence regarding her idea of dating. He is aggressive, angry and incredibly unlikable. This emotion, for me at least, does not change all the way through the film. For a teenage boy who has the influence of a man in his life, even though that man is his father, he is incredibly possessive of his mother to a point that is actually really uncomfortable. Meanwhile, Jim is confronted with the revelation that his oldest daughter is growing up when he barges in on her in the bathroom using gel shoe insoles as a bra filler, I imagine that would be quite cold, sticky and rather uncomfortable. It's obvious that Hillary wants to be more girly, but she's struggling to find a way to let her dad know, mostly because it's not a revelation he will be at all comfortable with. All the while, his girls are more boyish, he knows exactly where he stands. Jim actually has two other daughters, Espen, yes, ESPN, you know, the sports network, who can't let her dead mother go which is understandable, and Lou, the youngest, who is quirky and still at that really cute age where you can sort of pinch the cheeks and go, oh, so sweet. She has her moments, though. 
Despite promising that he was going to be there to support his youngest son, Mark, Lauren's ex, doesn't show up to Tyler's baseball match. And when it's a case of three strikes and you're out, Tyler has a meltdown. Something that is a common occurrence, the commentator and the parents in the stands have come to expect. But then nobody disciplines him or tells him off or anything. So it does make you wonder if that would make a difference at some point. Jen showed up to the game and despite providing a tiny bit of support, especially when someone comments on Tyler's behaviour, she actually has another motive. She needs time off because her boyfriend Dick has arranged a luxury African safari for them. That night, Lauren is collecting the laundry from her boys' bedrooms when she finds a centrefold underneath Brendan's bed. Though Lauren isn't exactly happy about that, she is more disturbed about the fact that he's taped a picture of his babysitter over the girl's face. Without thinking, she rips it up and then panics. At the same time, Jim is tucking Lou in when Hillary comes into the room and asks if she can borrow the car. She's only 15 and therefore can't drive without a licensed driver, something that her dad points out. However, it's her time of the month and she needs supplies. Reluctantly, Jim knows that he's going to have to go and get them from the nearest store or there might be a bit of a problem. At the late night pharmacy, Jim is out of his depth. This seems to be kind of a cliche. Maybe it should be a class taught in school, how to buy your partner tampons. He's standing studying the feminine hygiene aisle and has no idea what product he's meant to buy. Meanwhile, Lauren is in the same shop studying the adult magazines, desperate to find the centrefold she ripped up so that she can replace it before Brendan notices it's gone. Why exactly is she so determined to pander to her son? Not once does she tell him off for any of his unacceptable behaviour. Jim sees her and is able to help her find the right magazine, though he does tell her that perhaps her son is a little bit odd. She, in response, tells him that if he had kids, he'd understand. And it's at this point that he mentions he has three daughters, though he doesn't say anything about treating them like sons to make it less difficult for him around the house. After he's helped her, Lauren helps him to pick out the right product for Hillary. He even proposes that he purchase the magazine and she buys the tampons, which will resolve the potential embarrassment and her very obvious discomfort. Of course, the moment they leave the store, the truce is over. They swap their purchases and head on their way. Though interestingly enough, I noticed both Lauren and Jim drive identical cars. And other note, when Jen arrives later on in the film, she is driving the identical car to them. Do they not have any other vehicles? Or maybe they have a sponsorship deal. I can't help but observe how awful Lauren's oldest son is. He's creepy, possessive, rude and incredibly aggressive. And when Jim shows up at the house the day after the pharmacy because it turns out they swapped credit cards in error, Brendan is nothing but accusatory. This is the point when Lauren, in my view, should have told her son off, but instead she just sends him on his way and sort of tries to justify his behaviour. Even as they are exchanging cards, neither of them can agree on anything and they are incredibly antagonistic towards each other. And then Jen arrives, upset because it's all over with Dick. 
Lauren quickly dismisses Jim, though he doesn't actually look like he's in a hurry to leave or go anywhere else. It appears that Dick failed to reveal the truth about himself, that he has five kids, and this luxury holiday he had planned was actually for the entire family, much to Jen's horror. Both Lauren and Jim find Jen's fear at the idea of five children hilarious, and when she tells them, they both laugh. Jen's boyfriend is Jim's boss, it turns out, and while Lauren is asking Jen about the holiday that she is no longer going to go on, Jim is on the phone asking Dick if he can also purchase a share in this holiday so he can take his girl somewhere. Before you know it, we're in Africa, and Brendan is commenting on the fact that it appears Jim is stalking his mother, when in actual fact they are now both on Dick and Jen's holiday at a beautiful resort that has thought of everything except for people using fake identities to get a very discounted trip. Have to be honest, when I saw this the most recent time, I did have to wonder how they didn't notice each other on the plane. I know they're big, the planes that is, but how did they miss each other at the airport? Because surely they'd have gone from the same location. And they'd have arrived at the same location and picked up their luggage and got on the bus, you name it. I'm just confused as to why they didn't notice each other before. It turns out that Dick had arranged for his family holiday to be full of romance and excitement, but I'm still left to wonder how come Jim ends up sleeping in the same bed as his youngest daughter when there should be beds for five in the first room they are shown to, as this is where Dick's children would have been sleeping. And unless I forget something, he had five, therefore there would have been five beds? Anyway... They eventually decide on a way to split the rooms, with Jim and his girls in the room that doesn't appear to have five beds in it, and Lauren sharing the overly romantic heart-shaped bed in the adult room with her boys. Seriously, this room has edible panties as a room favour and a stripper pole in the corner. Yeah, that's great and easy to explain to children. At dinner that evening, they meet the Warnick family, Eddie, Ginger and Jake. Ginger is Eddie's second wife and Jake is rather dismissive of her. To be fair, they are incredibly keen on public displays of affection and Ginger could be modelled on Ginger from Gilligan's Island. In fact, she probably is. Because Jim, Lauren and their separate families have assumed Dick and Jen's identities, they also have to share the table and there is no option for them to sit elsewhere, though Lauren does ask. The moment they arrive at the table, you just know that Hillary is interested in Jake, who has something about him that reminds me of the slender French boys who used to come over as part of the foreign exchange when I was a teenager. So, of course, she's bound to be interested. He's a little bit emo without the black eyeliner. As they sit down to eat, the entertainment for the week is introduced. And is it just me or does Nickens, who is played by an incredibly buff Terry Crews, Remind anyone else of characters in the original Coming to America. For some reason, now that I've seen it, I cannot unsee it, no matter what I do. Anyway, entertainment introduced, we all discovered that the holiday Dick had planned on bringing Jen to in order to properly introduce her to his children is for blended families, hence the title. Though I still feel that it doesn't really fit the film. Over the duration of the holiday, we see a lot of evidence of Jim and Lauren not only getting to know each other, but also making something of an effort. 
Lauren is the first one to make a move when it comes to Jim's kids. And of course, Lou, his youngest, is the first one to realise that Lauren isn't a bad person and warms to her quite quickly. Though, of course, this may be aided by the fact that Lauren makes her look less like the walking dead and more like a kitty cat when she has her face painted. Seriously, no, that was just so wrong. While Lauren is helping Lou, Jim is with her daredevil son, Tyler, a boy who has no idea of fear and will tackle pretty much anything, though he'll have a meltdown if he misses three pitches at Little League. When Lauren and Lou return, it's to find her son and Jim racing ostriches, and knowing how devil-may-care her son is, she's horrified and incredibly angry with Jim for being so irresponsible even though Tyler is over the moon at the fact he's been able to do something so exciting and so different. Then Lauren commits the cardinal sin, at least as far as Jim is concerned. She helps Hillary to find her inner girl and express it properly. Hillary has really been struggling. She knows that her dad sees her, but she also knows that he just sees her as a basketball player he has all the girls' hair cut by the same barber that he visits, which is great for him, but not so great for a 15-year-old girl who is constantly being mistaken for a boy. The funniest scene with Hillary is when she's playing a two-on-two game with her dad and a father and son from another family. She's trouncing the boy soundly in the game when she spies Jake watching courtside. It's at this point that she starts skipping and dancing and voguing instead of playing ball. Jim is horrified and starts to tell her off for being so weird. And it's only at this point that the other family realises Hillary is actually a girl. Lauren spies Hillary moping, which is pretty understandable as her dad just can't see her as anything more than his basketball-playing oldest child. And she wants to be the butterfly. And being a woman who likes to organise things, she takes Hillary under her wing and helps her to break open that shell and show everyone who she has the potential to be. Yes, who she's got the potential to be is Bella Thorne in a beautiful dress with hair extensions and makeup. She looks grown up and Jim is neither amused nor impressed. Lauren has made a decision that he was not ready to have made for him and that's unacceptable. In fact, it's unacceptable as, as far as any parent is concerned. Don't make decisions for other people's children. Jake notices Hillary, though, to be fair, he already had noticed her, even with her bad bowl cut. And much to Hillary's pleasure and Jim's horror, he asks her to go with him to get food. Of course, Jim still makes a point of mentioning her basketball and how she needs to bulk up on protein. He really just does not get girls at all. And I have to wonder at this point if he has no family left to help him raise the girls. Because while he is a great dad, he really doesn't have a clue. When Jim and Lauren aren't at each other's throats, they get on really well because they actually have some very similar experiences and know how difficult it is to raise children alone. Sure, Lauren may be divorced, but her husband is about as useful as a dry cup in a desert, despite thinking that he's got everything sorted. He really doesn't. The next day on the holiday has been put aside for a safari where they see giraffes, rhinos and lions. Jim finally realises that he has to loosen the reins a little when it comes to Hillary, though he isn't going to let them go completely, and nor should he. She's only 15. 
Everyone on the trip is introduced to a desert tribe and are invited to join them in a dance, which gets awkward quickly. But then every single film with Adam Sandler in it, apart from Uncut Gems, has that awkward scene that makes a part of you cringe a little inside. That was this moment for me. You just know that at some point the trip is bound to go wrong. But for now, everything is going smoothly and everyone is having fun, including Lauren and Jim. Somehow, the pair find themselves at an intimate couples massage class where they both have fun and loosen up a little, exactly what they needed. And it's at this point a small spark bursts to life. They're having fun and enjoying each other's company, starting to relax. They seem to be on the verge of kissing when Lou interrupts and asks Lauren to come and tuck her in and read her a story. Initially, Jim tells her that he'll be there soon, but Lou is insistent and Lauren obviously agrees. All tucked in and ready for sleep, Lou asks Lauren to sing her a song, which she does, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Espen, Hilary and Jim hear it and the world seems to stop for a moment. Is it just me, though, or does every film like this seem to have that one song that brings back memories? Not for the person watching, but for the characters within it. With all the songs in the world to choose from, how does Lauren manage to pick the one song that reminds them of the person they lost? Seriously, anybody got any ideas? I know it's a plot point, I know it's a film, but at the same time, it's one of those things that quite annoys me at times. Back at the resort, Jim helps Tyler practice hitting a fastball and actually does the one thing that no one else has had the guts to do when Tyler starts to have a meltdown when things don't go his way. He calls him on it. Tyler continues to practice and hits a ball out of the park. It's at this moment that Brendan shows up again. He's kind of been almost absent. He's there, but he's lingering in the background like a dementor. He is always so angry and uses any opportunity to let it out. I really, really wish that someone would call him on it because it's not something that my mum would ever have put up with. His irrational outbursts are just that, irrational. Luckily, Jim does call him on it and steps into the ring with the boy, who then punches him. But Jim did ask him to do so. Hopefully, Jim let him win, though that probably wasn't the wisest move. However, punching out a child probably would have got him in bigger trouble, especially with Lauren. Lauren, having developed feelings for Jim, spends time getting ready for their last night. And when she goes through her luggage, she discovers the dress that started her whole trip down in Adequacy Drive at the beginning of the film. It turns out that Jen knew the dress was perfect for her friend and stole it from their customer, who hadn't even taken the label out of it. So, no, she still stole it from the customer. Though Lauren likely feels a little bit guilty, the dress fits her perfectly. She takes time doing her hair and makeup, and when she arrives for dinner, Brendan is horrified. But Jim is more than a little bit impressed, and that's what she was going for. Jim and Lauren end up on a solo date that Lauren originally believed Dick organised in order to propose to Jen. However, Jim organised the entire thing on his own. They talk about their kids, the holiday, their lives, and then just as they're about to kiss, 
Jim gets cold feet and pulls away. Talk about awkward. When they arrive back in the US, Lauren's mind has been changed about Jim completely. He's not the uncouth man she thought he was when they first met at Hooters. He has hidden depths and she enjoyed the opportunity she had to get to learn more about them while they were away. Also, while they were gone, Jen and Dick reunited, so they didn't need the holiday after all. Jim is moping. He was sure that kissing Lauren would be a mistake in the moment. However, now he realises that it was a mistake not to kiss her, so he needs to find her and tell her the truth. His decision is aided by a far more astute Hillary, who has grown up a lot in just one week. It's amazing what new hair can do. He drives over to tell Lauren that he can't stop thinking about her, but when he gets there, her douchebag ex-husband, Mark, is there, who tells Jim that they're reconciling. This guy is absolutely delusional, seriously. I swear that this is where Brendan gets his shittitude from. See what I did there? Shitty attitude? Yeah, okay, whatever. When Lauren gets back from running errands, she is less than happy to see Mark in the house. He's trying to get into her good graces, but she's not fooled by his play acting. And that's exactly what this is. He's pretending because now he knows that someone else is interested, he wants back in. That sounds really wrong. Lauren isn't so quick to forgive. He cheated on her. He left her. They divorced. She isn't just going to say, yes, all is forgiven. Come back. At least... No sensible woman would do that. Not only that, but he's a pretty bad father too. She does, however, manage to get him to promise to come to Tyler's next baseball game because she knows that means a lot to Tyler. Remember I mentioned that there are moments in the film that just scream romantic drama? Here's one of them. Jim and Espen talk. She tells him that her mum has told her that she needs to leave, but that she'll always be around if she's needed. This moment changes the tone of the film for a brief moment, but it is the one when you realise the almost always silent Espen, who barely talks the entire way through the film, is a listener. She's mourning her mother in a way that feels comfortable, and now she is slowly getting ready to let go. At Tyler's baseball game, the predictable happens, and his dad is a no-show, But Jen, Dick and his kids are all there to show support. Jen, for all that she clearly wants to make things work with Dick, does not look at all comfortable with his children. And it's surprising to see that most of them are really young. One even looks to be a toddler. For a woman who loves designer everything, sticky fingers must give her nightmares. Tyler is up for bat and looks to be near a meltdown having missed a ball when Jim and the girls show up calling out their support for him. Lauren, who believed that Jim had abandoned them when he didn't make any effort to keep in touch after the holiday, though mostly had this view because Mark is a jerk and didn't tell her about his visit, is really happy and surprised to see that he showed up. Jim's presence gives Tyler the confidence boost he needs and he hits on the final throw and gets a home run. His bad luck is over and he didn't need his dad there to end it. While the team is celebrating, Jim tells Lauren what Mark told him about reconciliation. He also tells her that he's realised he's ready to date. Finally, after an hour and 50 minutes, Lauren and Jim 
kiss with every single person on the bleachers looking on. Just in case you haven't checked any podcatchers in the last week, I visited St Mary Mead to get some gossip for the latest episode of The Bookshop as I talked about the first Miss Marple novel by Agatha Christie, The Murder at the Vicarage. It's available for download now. This film is one of those feel-good pictures that you want to hate, but for some reason just can't. I have to admit that when I checked out the box office for this film, I was surprised. Given the star power it has, I expected it to be a massive hit, even if the critics hated it. But that really wasn't the case. The film had a budget of between 40 and 45 million dollars, and globally it made just 128 million. I know to a single person, 128 million dollars sounds like a lot. In fact, to most people, it sounds like a lot. But when you consider the budget, that's actually not great, especially in comparison with the budget and box office of last week's film, which raked in a lot more on a much smaller budget. So what went wrong? It was actually quite a quiet weekend when it comes to films. X-Men Days of Future Past, The Other Woman, Godzilla and The Amazing Spider-Man 2 were out at the same time, but they were released earlier. So perhaps it was just the title and the, the appeal it had. If the box office showed poor viewings, what did the people that watched it think? While the audience rating of 64% puts it in the watchable category, the critics really didn't think that much of it, and the total rating for 140 reviews, yes, 140, is an incredibly unimpressive 15% on Rotten Tomatoes. According to Mark Commode, Adam Sandler's mission to destroy civilization with his vomit-inducing blend of mawkish sentimentality and dead-on-arrival humour all bundled up in a putrid package of festering, family-friendly fun. Wow, he likes his alliteration. And over on IMDb, people are even less generous with one saying, Garbage, this is the last straw. There is no possible way that this movie could have seriously been in theatres or actually even consider calling itself a movie. This was a joke. Not a single character played a convincing or necessary role in the movie. Drew Barrymore's performance looked like a little girl trying to keep herself from laughing. All of the children were incredibly annoying. I would much rather this have been a horror movie where each person would eventually get picked off. At least then I would have had something to look forward to. There are certain elements of this film that hark back to other Sandler films. There are classic stereotypes, such as the man who doesn't have a clue about how to raise girls and treats them like boys, or the beautiful girl who is hiding behind a bad haircut and poorly fitting clothes. Barrymore does have moments where she is Josie Grossy or hints at the fact that she may have been in the past while also channeling a little of every single cliched, well-organised woman. The fact that she believes she could have caused the breakdown of her marriage because she didn't wear sexy clothing is definitely a line I would say was written by a man. All of that having been said though, it's still watchable. Now we've come to the question and answer part of the episode. If there are any questions you would like to hear me answer about the films and shows I watch, or if there's something you really would love to hear me cover, just let me know. So here goes. Did I enjoy it? 
I have actually watched this a few times in the past, enough times to know the plot, remember many of the storylines, and only be a little inaccurate when it comes to the timeline. Does that mean that I like all the characters and enjoy every single plot point? No, it definitely does not. No matter how many times I watch it, I still want Lauren to actually call her oldest son out for his appalling behaviour. How could she let him get away with it? For the most part, the characters are likeable. Espen seemed a bit unnecessary. Brendan was annoying. But everyone else had something to offer. It was less cringeworthy than the vast majority of Sandler's body of work, some of which I have already mentioned. The perfect sort of film to watch when it's raining and you want a bit of mindless entertainment for the afternoon. In the UK, it's currently available to watch on Netflix, though it swaps between Netflix and Amazon Prime quite often. Would I watch more? As this doesn't have a sequel, there is no more to watch, but I'm going to take this as a would I watch again. To be honest, I watch this every once in a while, and I think that most people have seen at least one of the three films that Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler have done together, whether it was this, Fifty First Dates, or the classic, The Wedding Singer. Perhaps Sandler's humour isn't quite what you're into, but often Barrymore manages to tame it a little bit. There are moments when it's a bit much, though, using tampons and porn as a way to bring them together again to give Brendan a reason to have another flip-out moment felt just a bit unnecessary. And while the couple's massage gave them an opportunity to touch and get to know each other, it could have been done in a different scene at the same time. But maybe that's just me. I have already said that this is the perfect rainy afternoon film and next time I will probably watch it while it's tipping it down and I'm reading a book because that's my usual Sunday and I'm not ashamed to admit it. So how are things in the coffee household this week? It's been a bit of a mishmash this week to be honest. Work is actually going really well though I did screw up my schedule just a bit by booking in my flu jab on the one day of the week I am meant to be in the office. Luckily, my employers are incredibly understanding. Unluckily, I ended up with the less favourable side effects from the vaccine, with a stonking headache and nausea, followed by a bruise on my arm. Yep, minor in the scheme of things, as flu is much worse, but it could have come at a more convenient moment. Like never. Apart from that, I'm feeling rather good. As I've already mentioned, work is going well. I'm reading a brand new book by an author I have discovered I enjoy and have been enjoying some good nights of sleep over the last week. Admittedly, I have been a little bit emotional of late and these emotional outbursts seem to be primarily focused on crying at things that aren't really sad, like episodes of the Doogie Howser reboot or previews of films that aren't sad at all. And I'm not sure why. It could be hormonal, because apparently I have now entered the delight that is perimenopause. Or it could be the fact that things are actually going well for a change. And I'm not used to it. Sometimes when things are going incredibly well, I'm just waiting for the axe to fall. But this time I am just keeping my fingers crossed in the hope that things are actually balanced for a while. My meds, at least the ones I take to keep me somewhat mentally right, are working as they should, in that they're working. And the fact that my life is going well, 
no stress about work, no worries about money, or the pressure that I put myself under to perform the way I think I should in order to make people happy, something that is pretty much impossible in some instances, is the way to go. It doesn't always work. Ultimately, the things that make me worry are things that I really can't do anything about. I can't change the way that people perceive me. I also can't change the way that they feel about me or how that influences their actions. All I can do is work on the person I am and do everything I can to accept who that is. At the end of the day, I am the one who has to look at myself in the mirror when I clean my teeth every morning and evening. And if I can't look at myself, then I definitely need to go and visit my therapist again when the eight-month waiting list reduces a little bit more. So... That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the listen and I'll be back next week for more. Don't forget, the bookshop will be open again on Monday with a brand new review of a brand new book. I've already picked it and I'm already reading it. And I hope you'll like what I have to say about it. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review or give me a star rating over on Podchaser. I really love reading what you have to say and no feedback is bad if it's constructive. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at not before coffee podcast or over on good pods where I've set up an account at not before coffee. Well, I need another drink as I definitely haven't had enough today. So I'm going to head and put the kettle on until next time. This is me saying farewell. Farewell.